what would you say to this person who called me not too awful long ago? He was a man, and he was struggling with what was going on in his life that had transpired within the past 24 hours. What had happened the past 24 hours, he, got, he had gone to work and he had been given the pink slip that he was losing his job. Now, he had been building up to this point, but this was the day, the critical day, when it all happened. And he goes home and he shares it with his spouse And when he gets there. And again, I'm catching this in a waterfall of emotion. I'm catching it where I'm having to literally try to make out and distinguish the words on the phone as he's crying, weeping, actually, telling me this. He's lost his job and he comes home, shares it with his wife. His wife says that she's also going to leave him. All in a matter of a 24-hour period. What do you say to that person who all of a sudden loses his relationship, the key relationship of his life? Now, obviously it built up to some point. There had been a lot of backstory to that. But on that day, it all came apart. It all came crumbling in. What would you say to a person on that? And why in the world? Now, here's, here's, here's the real question. Why in the world would he call a rank stranger such as myself? I didn't know him. He had never even been to Grace Point Church. But he had found us, heard about us, Wanted to call me, wanted to talk to me, wanted to ask me these kind of questions. This is intimate, personal questions. What would you say to that man? What would you say to this woman? This woman called a long time ago. So whenever our church didn't, we didn't have a building. And called me out in the middle of the night. And at that point, we were without a building and we had two, church, we had two lines. We had our home line that came in and we had a, a, a church line that came in. And I'm, I'm not kidding, it was one or two in the morning and I was slap out of it. But I got a phone call and I picked the phone up before I even had a chance to look at caller ID or anything. And I just responded with the hello. And, and then in a similar fashion as the, the man calling me, this woman begins to, not as emotional, more contemplative, more, more thought out, more matter of fact. But said to me, he says, ask me a couple of questions first. Is this a church? And I said, well, actually, I guess it is. I don't know. You're calling my bedroom right now. But, uh, you know, I didn't say that part. I thought that part. Uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things that I'm, I'm trying to get my thoughts together. And, and uh, she turns around and, and said this to me. She said, if you can't tell me why I should go on living, I'm going to end it all right now. That'll wake you up. Middle of the night, get a phone call like that. What would you say to that? But even deeper than that, why in the world would two rank strangers phone a church that they'd never been to and talk to a complete stranger that we've never met and talk about those deep, dark places of their heart? Unless my hypothesis is true, the church is the hope of the world. And when all of our props are taken away from us, whenever you strip away all the facade that we build up, our home, our success, our beauty, our fame, our fortune, when we strip of that all away, and if we lost it all in a matter of a heartbeat, in a matter of a 24-hour period, what we're really propped up against, what we're really leaning our life against, would all be in question. How hollow and shallow are we really? So this is the question that I think when I come to this message and I come to this topic of the church being the hope of the world, I, I really believe it. Because I really believe we hold in us the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And if we hold the keys to the kingdom of heaven, what are we doing with them? 
How are we being the hope? If you call yourself a follower of Christ, you call yourself a believer, if you've given your life to Christ, then you're a part of the church, then I'm going to turn the question on you for just a moment. What are you doing to be the hope of the world? How are you a part of that? Take your Bibles, be open to the book of Acts. We'll be there in just a moment. And I want to just kind of develop this, again, hypothesis a little bit further to really say that I I believe it and, and I think there's legitimacy to it because I believe, as I've said for several weeks, that the church is God's plan A. There's not a plan B. There's not a backup plan. There's not another option out there. Really, it's, it's, it's the church. It's, that's, that's where He gave His keys. That's where He commissioned His followers to go out from the church to the world, to the nations. And so when you look at the church, hopefully you're seeing something that it is, it is representation of God's kingdom, of God's idea, of God's hope. And if there is any hope and it's found in Christ, then, then by all means we carry that with us. And Colossians says that Christ in you is the hope of the world. So I knew when I'm talking to that lady, I know when I'm talking to this strange man on the other phone, I know that I hold inside of me a message of hope. See, I want you to understand this about Grace Point, that it's really not my goal to pastor this church and to pastor the largest church in northwest Arkansas. I'm not just trying to build up a great big audience here. I am truly, I want to somehow figure out how to measure this, but not by the seats and the butts in the seats, but I want to be able to measure it by not the audience, but by the army that we are. Are you a part of the army? Are you a part of that that's not carrying bullets and bombs, but a part of it that's carrying the message of hope, the message of peace to the world? I hope that that's what you're about. I hope that's what you understand this series is about and the the calling of God on us is about. If you found Acts chapter uh, 5, that's where we'll be today. We're continuing our study right on through through Acts. And we're hitting at a very high level and at a very 30,000 foot level because we're hitting a chapter a week and each one of these chapters is is chock-a-block full of, of, of content. But as you remember from last week, if you were here, you remember we talked about the church being 5,000 men. That's what they averaged, that's what they counted out. 5,000 men in chapter 4. You read it for yourself. And, but when you go on to chapter 5, they stop counting. They actually start talking in multitudes. Because amazing thing continues to happen. This imperative that, of this calling of God on the church, even though they were told their hands were slapped by the religious leaders, hey, shut your mouth, shut your trap, quit doing this, we're going to get things back to normal the way things used to be. They didn't do it. They kept going. They kept sharing. They continued to write on with what they were about. Look at Acts 5, chapter 5, verse 12. It says this, And now many signs and wonders regularly done among the peoples by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. Now verse 14. And more than ever believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Now in Acts chapter 2, we read that there were 3,000 total men, women, children that came to know Christ. They were literally able to count them out, 3,000. But when you go to chapter 4, there were so many of them, they could only count the men. Just count the men and we'll figure the, the women and children are right there with them. But when you get to chapter 5, they stopped counting. There were so many. There were so many that there were more now people, believers and followers, and the, the, this, this virus, if you will, of Christianity had spread significantly through the streets and the cities 
In, in, in fact, it creates inside of these religious leaders, these Sadducees, who just a chapter back were very angry. In fact, if you, if you read it in, uh, what is it? It's, it's in verse 17. You read the emotion that is inside of them. That they were filled with jealousy. Now, what did we read about last week? They were filled with, with, they were greatly agitated. They were greatly annoyed. And that's in chapter 4, verse 2. So in chapter 4, verse 2, they're very angry, greatly annoyed. In chapter 5, verse 17, they're filled with jealousy. Now, let me just say this to you. This is a commercial break right here. If you're a person in this room or you know anybody in this room who's angry or you're an angry person, you're tough to live with, in case anybody's never told you that before. Um, if you're a jealous person, you, you're tough to live with as well. So wake up to that reality, all right? But if you're jealous and angry, you're toxic. You're, you're a bomb. You're, you're, you're a nuclear bomb. And you're going off. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And these guys have now, they become angry and they're jealous. And it's all rolled up there. And now that these, these disciples didn't listen to them, they didn't hear the veiled threats. They weren't veiled, excuse me. They didn't hear the threats, the warnings. Hey, shut your mouth. Quit doing this. And now they're continuing to spread. And now there's more. They can't even count how many people are now following Christ. Now, go, skip down to verse 27. And then you kind of get the, 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 the feel for it. Now, again, we're hitting a lot of verses to get to the very last part of the chapter. But it's necessary. And so now they're in the temple. Again, this is kind of like Groundhog's Day all over again. They were in the temple. They're in Solomon's portico. Solomon's portico is where kind of uh, the teaching took place. And it's a part of the temple there. And then come down to verse 27. It says, And they had brought them and set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them. Again, Groundhog's Day. Reliving what happened last week. We strictly charged you not to teach in His name. It comes right back to His name. Again and again, it comes back to that powerful, amazing name of Christ. Yet, here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. I love that statement. In fact, if you have your Bibles, and you should bring your Bibles every week, just you can do this exercise that I'm about to ask you to do. And that is to underscore that phrase, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. Do you remember Acts chapter 1, verse 8? We talked about that a few weeks ago. Whenever he told them to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. He told them to go to Jerusalem. And they went to Jerusalem. And they literally, we see the Great Commission being fulfilled right there in Jerusalem by chapter 5. They are filling the streets. They're filling the homes. They're filling the schoolyards. They're filling the workplaces. You can't go anywhere that you don't hear this amazing message of God. They see that as an assault on who they are. And they intend to, uh, and you intend to, to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, notice this statement as well. We must obey God rather than men. We must obey God rather than men. If you're going to have a mantra in your life, if you're going to have an epitaph on your tombstone, I hope that whenever it's all said and done, that you can look at your life and you can say, I was more obedient to God than I was pop culture. I was more obedient to the things and the ways and the thoughts and the processes and the attitudes of God than I was what everybody else wanted me to do in my life. 
Teenagers, hear this message out. Why don't you rise up, stand up, be different in your own culture? Obey God rather than men. You work in the business world. The business world tells you this is that and it's not of God. Listen, rise up and obey God rather than men. Make that the statement of your life. It's really a statement of lordship. It's really a statement of what it means to be a follower of Christ. We say we're a follower of Christ, but sometimes we compromise that very thing. So anyway, they, they, they recount the story. They, they, Peter gives them this answer, and they're just dumbfounded. And so at this moment, they're just ready. They're seething. they got jealousy in one part of their heart, and they got anger in the other part of their heart, and it's brewing. It's toxic. They're ready to kill these guys. They didn't lay a hand on them last time, but they're going to lay a hand on them this time. And in this process, they're, they're, they're ready to kill them. This, this brain, this humble but yet probably very wise man called Gamaliel, he steps forward. He's a Pharisee. He's a leader. And you can read all this in this account as you keep reading through Acts 5. But Gamaliel steps forward and he kind of challenges them. And, and Gamaliel is a very respected individual. In fact, if you go all the way to Acts 22, verse 3, you'll find how even Paul refers to Gamaliel as one of his teachers. So Gamaliel is a respected individual. And so he steps forward and his lone voice kind of towers above the crowd. And, and he tells them, he says, Hey guys, if this is of God, we won't be able to stop it. If it's, a, if it's not of God... Hey, it'll take care of itself. It'll wash out. It'll, it'll end up. But if it's of God, listen, we are wasting our breath. We're wasting our manpower trying to stop what he's about. You read it for yourself there in verse uh, 39. He says, but if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. So here's this wise man. He kind of stops them right before they lynch these men. So listen, we cannot stop it. If it's of God, it will go on and on. And that's why I come back to the fact that intentionally and of God's design, the church that I speak of is not a stagnant building. It is a movement of God. And when it ceases to be a movement of God, it becomes a sterile religion. I don't want to be a part of a sterile religion. I want to be a part of a movement of God, both here and around the world. And if I'm going to be a part of a movement of God, then I've got to be about what God's about. So, and oh, by the way, let me say this too, because this is, a, this is a, a myth that's out there. But the safest place, how many of y'all have ever heard this statement? It's the safest place to be is in the center of God's will. If you've ever heard that statement, raise your hand. Okay, fairly common Christian statement. These guys are in prison for being in the center of God's will. These are guys are about to get their tail kicked because they're in the center of God's will. It's not always safe and easy in the center of God's will. Listen, the church and its persecuted existence didn't sound like it was a very safe place, but it's the right place to be. And when we live out our, when we live out our faith, it, it sometimes will set people even against us. I'm not talking about being bullied in the faith, obnoxious in the faith, but just living it out in, the, in, in God's way. Look at verse 40, and this is where I want to focus on, verse 40 to verse, uh, verse 42. It says, And when they called the apostles, they beat them and charged them. They were guilty. 
to speak no more in the name of Jesus and let them go. And they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for his name. It comes back to his name again and again and again. And here's the verse I want to focus on the rest of our time and every day in the temple, circle that word, and from house to house, circle those three words, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as Christ. How are we going to live in this crazy, hectic world? How are we going to live in a world that is not exactly really kosher or happy with and acceptable of the Christian faith being lived out? How do we survive whenever life comes falling on us? I see with these guys, these early church, these men, these women, these children, I see something here. They don't go it alone. See that bold and clear in this passage. There's a lot of people going in alone in their Christian faith saying it's a personal thing. Saying I can worship God in a deer stand as much as I can in the church building. Let me just kind of blow some of that out of the water right now. Here's what the church does. Here's how the church is going to survive. Here's how the church is going to be a movement. How it's going to continue forward. This is how you're going to survive tomorrow. This is how I'm going to survive tomorrow. And these two main staples that will keep us going, jot them down, everyone needs a a celebration experience. Now, I'm not just talking about a party. I'm talking, you'll, you'll hear how I define celebration here in a moment. But the early church, they were not accepted to be in buildings, okay? They couldn't build buildings. In fact, um, it wasn't until the Edict of Milan in 313 that Constantine even legalized Christianity. And it wasn't until 381 when the Edict of, of, of Thessalonica, Christianity even became a state religion. So up until that point, it was just a cult. It was a rogue group that was out there. So building buildings like we have here today, that was absurd. They didn't have anything. They couldn't have done that if they would have wanted to do that. So where did they meet? Because it says here that they met where? They met in the temple. That is where they met in verse verse 42. And every day in the temple. There was an experience that happened in the temple that was a meaningful, powerful experience. Now, now it was a celebration moment. It was an education moment. It was a life training moment. And when they weren't in... Jerusalem, where the temple was, they met in synagogues. So the temple and the synagogue really represented the large group meeting place of the followers of God. Acts chapter 9, verse 19, you find this. For some days we, uh, uh, he was with the disciples in, at Damascus, and, in me, and, he, excuse me, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues. Acts, 14, or Acts 17, 2 as was Paul's custom. Notice this was something he did regularly. He went to the synagogue service for three Sabbaths in a row, and he used the Scriptures to reason with the people. Acts 19, verse 8, And he entered the synagogue, and he continued speaking uh, out boldly three, uh, three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. So here's what I want to propose to you today. Where we in the 21st century have a church building come here on a regular basis. They didn't have that in the, New, in, in the early church New Testament. But it was still a part. They found a place. They met in the synagogue. They met in the temple. And they met there and they gathered there to worship. We gather here today to worship. Now what does this look like, this celebration experience? It's a corporate, collective, challenging celebration. 
When we come together as a church, we come and hopefully there's a corporate element. There's a lot of us here. We had a lot of people here in the first gathering. The reality is is that we don't know everybody. And you're not going to know everybody. There were multitudes of Christians. They didn't know everybody in the first century. They couldn't have known everybody. It's the same kind of a dynamic. So how do you live it out? How do you... How do you express this? Corporate worship has a couple of side effects I want you to jot down. One is it gives the Christians this corporate time to be encouraged. Hopefully you're encouraged when you come here. You're encouraged when you're with other believers. But it also does something with the unbelievers. It inspires them. You don't realize that, but as you bring that unchurched, unbelieving friend, that person far from God here, hopefully they're going to be inspired by truth. They're going to be inspired by your worship. I read this verse a few weeks ago, Psalm 126.2. Then our, our mouth was filled with laughter and tongues with joyful shouting. They said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. I want the world to look at the church and as you invite your unbelieving friends to be here, I hope they hear you singing. I hope they hear the Word of God. I hope they hear about teams that are in West Africa now and teams that just got back from Zambia this week. And I hope they hear the stories and I hope it inspires them to say God is doing great things there. Eddie Gibbs, one of my professors, he said, weekly worship services is a shop window on the church. People are able to look in the church and kind of get a feel. Some of y'all came to Grace Point for the very first time through a worship experience just like this. This was your shop window on the church, if you will. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 25. This is what I hope some of your unbelieving friends, my unbelieving friends, say about us. If some unbelieving outsider walk into our, in, in, in on, a, on a service where people are speaking out God's truth, The plain words will bring them up against the truth and probe their hearts. Before you know it, they're going to be on their faces before God, recognizing that God is among you. You need, let me just say this, I'm not an advertisement, I'm not a pitch man. You need this. You need this every week. You need this as much as you can get it. What we're doing right here, right now. I'm not selling it. If you're not getting it here, you're not jiving here, there's no chemistry between us and you, then please go somewhere else and find the chemistry. But if you got it, if it's happening here and God's speaking to you, stay here and then bring those who are far from God with you because they will be inspired by what they see and experience in you. Number two is there's a collective opportunity for sharing and serving. This happens week by week throughout this building and throughout this campus because so many of us are willing to give of our time and our life and our energies. Remember the disciples when they were walking up to the temple to pray? What did they do? They stopped. They saw a man in need. They reached down and they helped the lame man. When you come on this campus, I hope you come not only with a heart ready to worship, but you come with a heart ready to serve, ready to give of yourself and your time. Let me give you one more, one more element that this hopefully week by week, month by month brings to your life. There's a challenging growth in your life and faith. I hope when you come in this room that whether it's a song or it's a testimony 
I don't know how many of y'all responded. I heard a lot of people talk about, just even last week, uh, Samantha Pittman's testimony of all the excuses of why she shouldn't be going uh, to West Africa. Well, I got a text just before coming onto this service that says that they're all getting on the plane from Paris right now, heading uh, to West Africa. And Samantha was there. She had more excuses. I was challenged by her story alone. So listen, I hope every week your faith, your life, your status quo is challenged. And you'll not walk out of here the same. You will be changed. Vance Havner, great pastor of old, said this. He said, it's my job to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comforted. And I kind of feel like that's my role as well. How do we do that? Through God's Word, through the teaching. Acts 9.20, they were reasoning with the people. What? From the Scriptures. Acts 19a, they were reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Listen, I hope to God every time you come in here and every time we open this book that your life is challenged. You're, you're asked to walk a little taller. You're asked to achieve a higher bar. You're, we're going to raise the standard of what we're going to ask of you in your life, not because we're trying to make your life uncomfortable, because your life needs to be more conformed to Christ. And that will mean change. Listen, it's not our goal to simply inform you. It's our goal to see Christ transform you. That's what this is about. Let me tell you, true story, and I ask permission, and I I see Jane's in the room today, and I want to share this story of of what's transpired with Rick and Jane Strack. And it's really a kind of a cool thing when when you just chart it out. For the past several weeks, obviously, we have been speaking about about the church, what the church is to be about, the great commission of the church, and so on and so forth. And hang with me on this story. This is a really cool thing. Timeline with me. So we've been talking about this. We've been challenging you for weeks after weeks to consider the world, to go to the world, to go to the ends of the ends of the earth. And a few weeks ago, I'll say maybe three weeks ago, four weeks ago, Lori was hanging out, my Lori was hanging back at at the Go Center, and Jane walks by there and kind of hangs out and kind of looks at at, at what's kind of going on. Well, Lori engages her in a conversation. Now, let me me, me back up just a moment, because Jane and Rick had kind of already determined that they were not going on mission. That was kind of on, that was an off-limits, off-table, off, we don't go there. Okay, Jane heads back, talks to Lori. Lori invites her to go to... West Africa with her in a couple of weeks, or a couple of months actually. And that was the plan. Well, because there was lack of interest, sad to say, lack of interest, we had to cancel that trip. But, but Jane had already started the process. She got her passport application. She went that next week and she had put the, expedited, paid the extra money to get it expedited so that there would be no issues so she could go with Lori. Again, we had to pull the plug on that trip for lack of interest. But Jane had already started a process. She had heard a message. It had challenged her. She was willing to go to the ghost center. She hung out there at the ghost center just long enough for Lori to pounce on her. And then Lori uh, pounced on her. And I'll say God pounced on her through Lori. And, and, and then it went a little bit further that she was willing to take the next step and to go ahead and get the, the application and go ahead and, and fill it out. And then, beautiful story keeps unfolding, but kind of got sad for a moment because all of a sudden the trip got canceled. So what do you do? Fast forward to last week. I stood up and I said, I need one more woman in both gatherings. You know who that one woman is? Jane Strack. Raise your hand, Jane. Over in the corner. All right. Thank you, Jane, for answering that call. 
That's a great thing. Give her a hand. But the story doesn't end there. So she got the passport this past week on Wednesday, I think. And then on Thursday, or somehow we got the email, and I said, i got to share that. So she gave me the permission to share this email. I want to share just an excerpt of it. All right, this is what Jane wrote Lori this past Thursday. I'm so excited that I can now look forward to going to West Africa in January. I got my passport in the mail yesterday. I never imagined it would be such a worship experience. Who would have ever thought the federal government would initiate worship in the heart of an individual? But whenever you're walking in obedience, worship just flows out of you because you've been challenged, you've answered a call, you stepped forward, you were obedient, you got way outside your comfort zone, and all of a sudden, mail makes you worship. Beautiful, it doesn't end there. I just wanted to thank you for being the vessel God used to make this calling, to make His calling audible for me. And it started in a celebration experience like this. Some of you guys in this room right now, God has been calling, picking, choosing, trying to raise the bar in your life and giving and serving and sharing and going and being and doing. And you've been pushing back, pushing back with all manner of excuses. It's time to step forward. It's time to hear the call and answer the call. Whatever that means, wherever that is, just do it. That's what we're about. We're going to go that direction. Number two, here's the second staple that kind of helps keep the disciples moving forward. They also had a community connection. Everyone needs a community connection. You need to be connected in community. Now notice in this passage that we just read from, it it said that they met in houses from house to house. But this is not the first time it says this. Also in Acts chapter 2, verse 46, it said that they met in their homes. It said they met in Acts 5, 42, from house to house. The house becomes an important part of the picture. The house is where community happens. Listen, you on this side of the room, Todd Abbott, I see you up there, on this side of the room, are not going to know Kyle Cox on this side of the room unless you go there, get to know each other. Unless there's some point that brings you together. What we're going to try to do as a church is we're going to try to build environments where you can connect in community so you can meet house to house, so you can know one another, so you can walk with one another and experience life with one another. And man, live with one another in such a way that when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, and there will be somebody in this room or multiple somebodies in this room that this week They'll, they'll have someone close to them pass away. Just the law of averages. And if you go it alone, you'll find yourself in a state that you don't want to be. And you could easily spiral even further. Don't go through the valley of the shadow of death alone. Listen, you need community to connect with. And Kyle and Todd are not going to do it across the room in this big room. They're going to do it in a home. They're going to connect in a home. Here's the benefits of sharing in small community. One is community is where life is lived in office, with authenticity and transparency. It's not a social club. It's not a therapy hour. It's where you walk through the valley of the shadow of death together. It's where you experience death together, but you also rejoice in life together. 
when another family has a baby, when another family adopts, when another family brings a foster child into their home. We play together, we pray together, we weep together, we laugh together. Eddie Gibbs, again, one of my favorite professors, said this, Any, if anyone can go missing from your church without being missed, they were never a member. Here's the second benefit of community that you need to see today. Community is where faith is developed with accountability and challenge. Even I, I'm not above this. I'm not beyond this. Tomorrow morning at 6 a.m. in my office, I'm going to start a nine-month journey with a group of six men. And we're going to live life side by side. And we're going to challenge one another. And we're going to bless one another. And we're going to be real with one another. And we're going to probably cry with one another. And we're going to rejoice with one another. The Bible says iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. I need it as badly as you need it, as badly as everyone in this room needs it. And the way we do this, we, we, we do these two things. The celebration experience, you're in it. The community experience, we're about it. And we have 30-something groups that are gathering in homes all week long. We call them body life groups. This next week, um, tomorrow night actually, we kick off our fall women's Bible study. And there will be groups meeting all over the place. All over to connect women with women. There are fight clubs with men with men. And we, we, we cannot ignore this. In fact, I will say there's three responses to this message that you have today. One is you need to, first of all, evaluate, am I even of the faith? Am I even in a relationship with Jesus Christ? Who is this Jesus you speak of? Listen, it was so important that they made sure the streets of Jerusalem were filled with it. Do you know Christ? If you don't know Christ, you meet me at the Ghost Center whenever the service is out. I'll be hanging out there. Let's talk. Let's pray together. Let's sort this out. The second response is this. Some of y'all have been just hanging out with us for a while. Kind of like dating the church. It's time to propose and get married. Been living with us a long time. It's time to get married. It's time to become a member of Grace Point Church. Hey, listen, I'm not selling anything here. I'm just trying to raise the bar in your life. It's time for you to get serious about your commitment and walk with God. This Friday night and Saturday morning is our next North Point new members class. All you have to do is take out the little card that's in the front seat pocket in front of you, fill it out, register on the back, drop it in the offering basket. When it comes by in a few moments, we're going to make it as easy as possible. You're going to have to come up with excuses not to do it. But that's your second response. Third response. Some of y'all have been just hanging out in the big room thinking this is enough. I get fed. I get a good band. I get to hang out in the big room. But you're not in a small group. You're not connecting with people. You're not living life on life with people. And you need to be a part of the women's Bible study this fall. You need to be a part of a body life group right now that are meeting and assembling right now. This is that time. No more excuses. Now's the time. We were created for community. I established that in the beginning of the series. Christ and God and the Godhead living community, we were community. We're going to sing, the band's going to come back, and we're going to sing how deep the Father's love for us. It's not about me. It's about us. And God loving us. 
we're Grace Point Church. We start at the cross of Christ and experience His grace, but we come into community. Will you be a part of this community? Will you be a part of Christ? Would you bow your heads with me and pray? Father, Satan's playing for keeps. Satan is right now even playing in our minds. He's talking. He's messing with us. And Lord, your voice is also speaking. Some people in this room right now, you're calling some to follow you, to give themselves, to be born again, to know Jesus as Lord and Savior, where they can say in their heart of hearts, I'm going to obey God rather than men. Or some in this room, you're calling to be a part of this family. I know it's big. I know there's a lot going on. But Lord, it's not just joining an audience. It's joining an army. To be willing to go here and around the world to get our passports and to worship when they come in. Lord, because you've challenged us, you've raised the bar in our life. Thank you for this community that you're doing that in. And Lord, for the small groups that are forming now, Lord, you're calling some to to be a part and to join and and to become a meaningful, contributing part of a faith community, not just set on the side any longer. Lord, I pray. I pray for those men I'll be meeting with tomorrow. Lord, I need them. We need each other. We need each other in this room right now. Lord, would you, as our great Father, just be really real and transparent in us this minute. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand? Would you sing with our band?